Section 29 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 29. Divorce. Objection. The Catholic Church forbids divorce in all cases. This law is more severe than that taught by Christ himself. For he tells the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, that at least on account of infidelity to the marriage bond, a husband may leave his wife and marry another. The Answer The first part of our answer will be directed to the believer who accepts the Bible as the word of God, and the second part to the unbeliever. It is on the text just referred to that the Reformed churches have built their doctrine on divorce. They acknowledge, most of them, that divorce is forbidden in the gospel, but assert that one case is accepted, that, namely, in which the wife has committed adultery. In that case, they maintain, the husband may dismiss his wife and marry another. To this is opposed the Catholic doctrine, taught from the beginning of Christianity, which is that marriage can never be dissolved till the death of either of the parties to the contract. The two may live apart when there is a just reason for the separation, but until one or the other dies, they remain husband and wife and cannot remarry. The Catholic doctrine may be established by the very passage in Scripture on which the Protestants stake their whole case in favor of divorce. Let us see the passage in its context. And there came to him the Pharisees, tempting him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Who answering said to them, Have ye not read that he who made man from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be in one flesh. Therefore now they are not two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. They say to him, why then did Moses command to give a bill of divorce and to put away? He saith to them, Because Moses, by reason of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 through 8. Nothing can be more evident than that our Lord's intention was to make marriage what it had been from the beginning, and to abolish every modification of the divine institution which had hitherto been permitted. The old institution was to be restored wholly and entirely. Therefore, to have a clear conception of what marriage ought to be today, we must go back to the period preceding the advent of Moses and the publishing of the Mosaic Law, for Moses was the first to permit a dispensation from the full observance of the primitive law. Now in that earlier period, 
all is plain. The marriage contract bound the contracting parties during their lifetime, and absolute divorce was not permitted. In other words, the present Catholic doctrine held full sway. Hence, today, as before the time of Moses, in the most absolute sense of the words, what God has joined, no man may put asunder. This being the case, we are not prepared to encounter any expression in Scripture favoring a dissolution of marriage and undoing the reformation of marriage instituted by Christ. If any apparent expression of the kind occurs, we may be sure that in the context there is enough to explain it in a way that will make it harmonize with the intentions of Christ. This is the case with the one single passage in the New Testament upon which Protestants erect their doctrine on divorce. After our Lord had uttered the words quoted above, he added, And I say to you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marry another, committeth adultery. And he that shall marry her that is put away, committeth adultery. It should be needless to explain that it is not directly by putting away his wife that he would commit adultery, but by acts committed in a second marriage, which marriage would be simple concubinage as long as the first wife lived. Here, the reformers tell us, there is one case mentioned in which marriage may be dissolved, namely, that of fornication, or adultery, committed by the wife. In reply, we would remind the reformers that in fixing their attention on one part of the text, they have forgotten another. The last clause brings the text more clearly into harmony with the manifest intention of our Lord to abolish all absolute divorce. And he that shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery. Why committeth adultery unless the one put away is still the wife of the one who has put her away? Even when there is a just reason, as in the case of fornication, for dismissing one's wife, the marriage is not thereby dissolved. Our Lord's meaning would then be expressed by the following paraphrase of the verse, Whosoever shall put away his wife, though a man may be permitted to put away his wife on account of fornication, without, however, remarrying, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And in any case, he that shall marry her that is put away, committeth adultery, because she is still the wife of another. Our Lord's meaning is no less clearly expressed in the fifth chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. Here, in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, he contrasts the precepts and the spirit of the old dispensation with those of the new. Such expressions as, It was said to them of old, etc., but I say to you, etc., occur more than once. In regard to marriage, we find the following. And it hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a bill of divorce. Matthew, verse 31. Here, as in the case of the other contrasts, we should expect something different to be prescribed by our Lord from what has been permitted under the old law. We should expect to see divorce disappear 
under the new dispensation. And this, we shall see, is the meaning of the following verse. But I say to you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, excepting for the cause of fornication, maketh her commit adultery. And he that shall marry her that is put away, committeth adultery. The meaning of the first clause in the above verse is that the husband that puts away his wife is responsible for the sin that may be committed by the woman through a second union, for she is still his lawful wife. But if he dismiss her on account of the sin of fornication, the husband is not responsible of what may happen afterward. She has deserved dismissal, and the blame is not her husband's if she incurred the danger of further sinning. But our Lord adds, without any exception or distinction, He that shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery, because she is still the wife of another. The contrast, then, is clear. Moses permitted a certificate of divorce dissolving marriage. Christ permits no dissolving of marriage, and regards as adulterous any marriage contracted by a wife separated from her husband. The Catholic doctrine is sustained by other significant passages in the sacred writers. In these, there is no exception mentioned to the law forbidding divorce, even when it would have been important for any exception, if there were such, to be mentioned. In St. Mark's account of the incident we have been considering, as related in the 19th chapter of St. Matthew, our Lord's prohibition of divorce is absolute and conditionless. And when our Lord, after his discourse, had gone into the house, his disciples, to whom he was accustomed to give exact explanations in private, questioned him further on the subject of marriage. And he saith to them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if the wife shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Note the universal expression, whosoever, none are accepted. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. Our Lord again in Luke chapter 26, verse 18 uses words of no less absolute import. Every one that putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, etc. And St. Paul inculcates the law of Christian marriage without any mention of exceptions. The woman that hath a husband, whilst her husband liveth, is bound to the law. But if her husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Therefore, whilst her husband liveth, she shall be called an adulteress, if she be with another man, etc. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. In the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, St. Paul says, To them that are married, not I but the Lord commandeth, that the wife depart not from her husband. And if she depart, that she remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. St. Paul here speaks in the name of Christ, and subsequently, as interpreting the words of Christ, 
and yet he not only makes no mention of any exception to the law against divorce, but positively excludes all exceptions. For he contemplates cases in which the wife would depart from her husband, whether on account of her husband's sins or from some other cause, but he declares that she must remain unmarried because she has not ceased to be a wife by being separated from her husband. He adds, moreover, and let not the husband put away his wife, evidently by an absolute divorce, for the Lord himself permitted the husband to send away his wife on account of sin, though he would still remain her true husband. Reviewing the texts we have been quoting, we find that it was our Lord's intention to reform marriage root and branch. From the beginning, matrimony had made man and wife one, and had united them by a perpetual bond. In the course of time, owing to the hardness of men's hearts, Moses was directed from on high to permit divorce. But Christ, when he came, reasserted the sacredness of the marriage tie and declared that now, in the new era of grace, marriage should be what it had been from the beginning. Evidently, then, to permit today absolute divorce is to reverse the law of Christ and return to the Mosaic dispensation. It is to turn Christians into Jews. The interpretation we have given the scriptural texts in question is the interpretation given them during the 15th centuries of the church's existence before the appearance of Luther. The reintroduction of divorce on the supposed warrant of scripture was a bold innovation, reprobated by antiquity no less than by the living voice of the church of God. The laying of violent hands on so sacred an institution as matrimony, and St. Paul tells us, that it is sacred enough to have been made the symbol of the union between Christ and his church, is a striking illustration of the lengths to which private judgment may go in dealing with the divinest of things. In the present case, it is all the more impressive as the innovation has wrought such sad havoc in the relations of men. When self-constituted reformers presume to make laws of their own, for the government of the married state, they were the authors, remotely and in causa, of the sin and disorder that have followed in the wake of divorce in our own day. Once an exception was invented to the law of divorce, the door was thrown open to all manner of abuses. Absolute divorce, which was sought at first for more or less serious, though insufficient, reasons, has so utterly degenerated that today a discontented wife or husband can get a divorce from the courts almost on the asking. But, to return to the genuine Christian conception of marriage, when the Son of God became man and inaugurated the new dispensation, the imperfect was to be superseded by the perfect. God had for a time permitted marriage to lapse into an imperfect state, to prevent greater evils. But now, in an era of greater grace, and when the marriage contract was to be raised to the dignity and given the efficacy of a sacrament, 
the absolute permanence of the marriage tie was to be a law, admitting of no exceptions. And indeed, it is only under the dominion of grace that marriage can ever realize the beautiful ideal of the married state contemplated by the Savior of the world. It is the supernatural element in the relations of husband and wife that confers on Christian wedlock its unique character and makes it an object of admiration to those outside the pale of Christianity. It is the supernatural element that solves all those problems, or rather leaves none to be solved, which agitate the unbeliever in his practical study of human nature, who, if he fails to solve them, fails because he eliminates a factor which is essential to their solution. He knows nothing of sacramental grace. Fixing his gaze exclusively on human nature, with all its imperfections, he considers a universal law of permanence for the marriage bond, an unnatural and rigorous condition under which to live, and regards it as the source of so many evils that the possible enacting of it cannot be worthy of the divine wisdom. He forgets that it is precisely the divine wisdom that has supplied a remedy for human imperfections by a special sanctification of matrimony. See Marriage a Sacrament. It may be objected that there are many who cannot thus sanctify the married state. They know nothing of sacraments or of the effects, if such there are, of divine grace. Are these persons, when conjugal happiness ceases, to remain the victims of an unnatural union? Is there no means of escape from their unhappy lot? To this objection we would reply that God's grace is not wanting to any class or order of human beings. True, the fullest influence of grace is experienced within the pale of the church which Christ has made the dispenser of his mercy. But according to their absolute needs, Grace is given to all men without exception. The divine aid is always at hand to assist the wedded in overcoming the difficulties of married life, and to those who live according to their lights and observe the natural law, which is written on every human heart, grace is given in exceptional abundance. For no one, therefore, outside the church is there any excuse for breaking the marriage bond. But what about innocent victims of an unnatural or unhappy marriage? We answer, in the first place, that both divine and human law provide for separation, without divorce, in cases in which exceptional suffering, guiltily inflicted, is endured by either of the parties at the hands of the other. This should be a satisfactory solution of the difficulty to all right-minded persons. It secures the happiness of the innocent party and is no injustice to the guilty. But, in the second place, it must be remembered that the divine law and all human law based on the divine provide not only for the good of the individual, but also and still more for the good of society. The good of the greater number is more important than that of the few. The divine prohibition of divorce 
debars the discontented wife for husband from the pleasures, such as they may be, of a second marriage, but the general good of mankind is secured. Indeed, society is saved from the direst of evils. We may add, however, that it rarely happens that the individual is not saved from as great evils as society at large. What works for the general good works for the good of the individual. We cannot do better in this connection than quote a forcible passage from a French author whose high intellectual influence in his native country is well known, a writer of fiction, but a fiction based on realities. The words we shall quote are put into the mouth of a priest and are addressed to a divorced woman who strangely wishes to be reconciled with the church without separating from her second husband. The priest's refusal to admit her to the sacraments evokes a bitter complaint against the laws of the church, which the woman declares are less merciful than the divorce laws of the code. The priest's reply is a vindication of the marriage laws of the church as preservative of the general good. Let me give you an illustration, commonplace it may be, but to the point. A ship has arrived at a port where a passenger wishes to land. It is of the highest importance for him. He wants, for instance, to see a dying father or to take part in a lawsuit upon which depends the welfare of his family. Imagine anything you like. But a case of plague has broken out upon the boat, and the authorities have forbidden that any passengers come ashore for fear of contagion. Would it be just, would it be kind, to give way to the entreaty of the one traveler at the risk of spreading the plague in a city of a hundred thousand inhabitants? Clearly not. Here, then, is a case in which justice and charity demand the sacrifice of the individual interest for the general good. This principle dominates all society. If we are called upon to decide between two courses, the first clearly beneficial to the whole community and painful to some individual, the second agreeable to him but hurtful to the whole, both justice and charity demand that we shall adopt the first course. This is indeed the test which we must apply to every institution, and, applying it to indissoluble marriage, what is the result? Society is composed of families, and the better the families, the better will society be. Now think how much greater likelihood there is of healthy families, the better will society be. Now think how much greater likelihood there is of healthy families where a system of indissoluble marriage prevails. If marriage is irrevocable, it will be entered upon only after the most serious reflection. There will be greater closeness of bond between grandparents, parents, and children, since the family comprises fewer alien elements. There will be chance of greater unity of spirit, of a common tradition. Marriage of this kind is the strongest pledge for that social permanence 
without which there is nothing but anarchy and perpetual unrest. And here history confirms reason. It teaches that all superior civilizations have developed toward monogamy. Now divorce is not monogamy, it is excessive polygamy. I will not give you a course of sociology, but do you know what statistics show? Where divorce exists, the number of criminals, lunatics, and suicides is tenfold amongst divorced persons. Thus, for one who, like yourself and a few others, retains in his divorced condition the finer traits of heart and mind, the majority lose or debase them. To base social order upon the supposed needs of possible degenerates is to set up the abnormally low as a standard. We may call that progress, but science calls it retrogression. Note that we have been looking at the matter from the point of view of pure observation. Purposely, as I wished you to realize, the identity there is between the law of the church and the law of society, between the teaching of experience and the teaching of revelation. In its struggle for existence, humanity has fallen back upon the very same rule of which the church has made a dogma. Try to realize, in the light of these ideas, how seriously you have erred in availing yourself of the criminal law, which the worst enemies of social well-being, the would-be destroyers of the family, have introduced into our code. You yourself have assisted in this task of destruction as far as lay in your power. You sacrificed society to your own happiness. You and your second husband have set up in a small way a type of the irregular home, one, too, all the more dangerous because your virtues enable you to set an example of decency in irregularity and present an appearance of order in the midst of disorder. It is that which renders so dangerous the errors of the gifted. They retain their natural nobility even when they sin. They fall without becoming degraded. They cloak the deformity of evil and spread it all the more insidiously. Though it is but twenty years since that detestable law of divorce was passed, if you only knew how many tragedies I have seen it produce already, into what catastrophes households like yours have been plunged through their failure to discern the truth which is stamped on every conscience, that liberty contrary to the laws of nature engenders servitude, neglected duty entails misfortune. I have seen fratricidal hatreds between the children of the first and second marriage, fathers and mothers judged and condemned by their sons and daughters. Here deadly antagonism between stepfather and stepson there between second wife and the husband's daughter. Elsewhere I have seen jealousy of the past, a past living, because the first husband lives, torture the second husband. Again, hideous struggles between the first husband and his former wife over their children's sickbed, or, where the children have grown up, over a young man's follies or a daughter's marriage. Nor have I mentioned 
the ever-recurring bitterness against the ill-will, open or dissembled, hypocritical or sincere, it does not matter which, of a world which, after all, retains intact its respect for Christian marriage. Paul Bourget, A Divorce To sum up, the Catholic teaching is not more severe than that of Christ, since it is identical with that of Christ and his apostles, nor is it more severe than is required by the general good of society. And for the most part, the individuals directly concerned, they and their offspring as well, are saved from many evils. The wisdom of Christ in abolishing all divorce is seen, by contrast, in the evils that follow in the track of divorce. It is no less visible in his sanctification of the married state by a sacrament whose effects are experienced by parents and offspring alike. End of section 29